0: this is back to excited with your host arvind and acting the fool from pension plan puppets hi welcome to back to excited episode 138 my name is arvind joining me as always my colleague from pensionplanpuppets.com
1: it's acting the foolman hi everybody how are you doing foolman i'm good i think some congratulations are on order on your end though uh, we- for what
0: well, I, look, I know you want to congratulate, you know, my personal <laughs> takes and analysis for inspiring Austin Matthews to score as much as he has, but I think most of the credit goes actually to William Andrew.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think you should sell yourself short. As the emotional impetus for that hat trick that Austin Matthews scored last night, every time Austin Matthews goes on the ice, he thinks, "Man, I want to make RV proud." Mm. And you know what? You did, Austin. You did. <laughs> No, Arvind is going to be able to append doctor to his name, or prefix doctor on his name.
0: Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah. Uh, I, I, can, I can finally be one of those insufferable people, who, insufferable people who just tells you to call them doctor at all times, even though it's not relevant. <laughs> and it's also not even the useful type of doctor.
1: well don't say that you can do all sorts of math that's like akin to magic from where i'm sitting like it's almost beyond my comprehension at all but yeah anyway so congrats to arvind who's smart and has worked his ass off so thank you very much i appreciate it yeah um and now let's segue awkwardly to the riley nash trade (laughs) some speaking of someone who's smart and works their ass Mm. off, How do this (laughs) there it is i was trying to come up with something to do that smoothly and i totally blanked on how to transition it my bad um yeah so let's let's talk about uh the the trade
0: the leafs have made this podcast might be slightly out of date by the time you're listening to it because we're recording this sunday morning as we always do trade deadline is monday i believe so you know there is as there often is chatter about the leafs and you know the fans are trying to wish a taylor hall and possibly linus omar trade into existence How Dubas doesn't really care for our wishes, it seems, in in, a general sense. (laughs) So who knows what's going to happen. But he did make one trade. Yes, he did. And that was trading a conditional seventh-round pick, the favored tool (laughs) of EA Sports NHL GMs everywhere, Mm. um, for one Riley Nash. So the conditions on the pick, it's a seventh-round pick that becomes a sixth-rounder if Nash plays above 25% of the Leafs' playoff games this year. Mm Mm-hmm. Not an incredibly difficult um, condition to, to meet, but the difference between a 6th and a 7th is almost nothing. So, I mean, for our purposes, we can basically, I, I'm just going to kind of mentally treat it as a 6th round pick.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and it doesn't really affect the trade calculus at all. Um, so, Fulman, let me know. What are your th- initial thoughts about this deal?
1: So the interesting thing about this is that the Leafs traded for someone who was injured right this second. Which you don't always see that often. But Riley Nash is out and is anticipated to remain out until game one of the playoffs. And so the fact that Riley Nash has a cap hit of 2750000 million doesn't actually have much impact on the Leafs. Because they were able to put Freddie Anderson on LTIR, acquire Riley Nash, and then LTIR him in turn. With the result that by the time Riley Nash returns, it will be the playoffs and the salary cap will not exist anymore for that purpose. So they were able to get a player who was paid a lot more than the bargain bin buys, you know, in the 700000 sort of range. And yet they were able to do it without really encumbering their cap space. Right. So I think it's yes. significant that they made this particular acquisition for a Kucherov-esque <laughs> addition in technique only. Obviously, Raleigh Nash isn't quite as good as Nikita Kucherov. But yeah, the idea of a player who's going to return right in time for the playoffs when... So the Zauer cap doesn't matter. Without getting too hyperbolic
0: about the impact here, I do think this is quite clever from the Leafs. Mm. Um, it shows a certain flexibility that this was only, to my understanding, and, you know, we want to stay away a little bit from the cap mechanics here because it's all quite um, uncertain, it seems. Like, there there's conflicting information about it. We believe that, you know, what Fulman just said about the mechanics of Nash coming in, being on IR first, and then out he IR'd, and being fit in through Anderson's LTIR space. We believe that's correct, but, you know, there's obviously a lot still that we don't know, and NHL teams don't exactly publish the mechanics of this. Mm -hmm. So if something's wrong, we apologize, but we believe that's correct. Um, This is just a certain flexibility, because as we said, this is only really made possible by the Anderson injury, which was, you know, only a thing in the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it presented, I guess, an opportunity that wouldn't have otherwise been available to us, right? So this, this... um injury is not a good thing in general for your cap space, right? And this is a common misconception with LTIR. It doesn't really it, it's it's not meant to be a get out of jail free card. In fact, it isn't a get out of jail free card. Yeah. Right? It, it's just simply meant to replace the salary of the player you were losing on injury. Um and it limits you in other ways. But uh this once you once you're using LTIR the marginal cost of acquiring further injured players is is not necessarily large, right, in terms of how it hampers you.
1: Yeah, this is sort of the the in-for-a-penny, in-for-a-pound principle. You might remember a while back, the Leafs were already using LTIR. They had Nathan Horton, who was, you know, permanently injured at the time, and they reacquired David Clarkson, who was also effectively retired, to increase the amount that they had on the LTIR once they were already using it. So... Yeah, in for a penny, in for a pound is the, the best read I have on the logic there. Mm-hmm. The bottom line with this one is that the Leafs got this player, and it should not handcuff them from making subsequent moves. It's going to take some creativity, but it's certainly within the capacity mm-hmm. of Brandon Pridham and the Leafs front office to find ways to get players. Mm-hmm. What what would handcuff them more is is the fact that they have to use OTR in the first place, mm-hmm.
0: right? Um, and the Anderson injury, for example. Tati has gone into depth... Uh, various times through the year of how the Leafs' injury situation was kind of causing mild issues for their for their cap and largely preventing them from banking cap space, mm-hmm. um, which they didn't seem that interested in doing even when they had the opportunity to. Um, so, I mean, that stuff I'm we're kind of just setting to the side. Uh, I believe that this also kind of requires um, Anderson to stay out until the playoffs. Correct?
1: Not necessarily, because they retroactively okay. LTI'ed him. Right, but if we bring him
0: off LTIR, oh yeah. So never mind, yeah, because um, we don't need to fit uh, Nash's cap space in because he's now on LTIR. Okay, yeah. okay, so good. I'm glad we. Could, uh, I'm glad I didn't spread that misinformation. So <laughs> Anderson can come back um, whenever he's healthy. Which, side note, it, it, it it's really weird that you know two weeks ago they're like, yeah, Anderson's day to day, but check to us, talk to us in a week.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's like that that word. I don't think that means what you think it means. I do remember Sheldon Keefe explicitly saying we're told it's not serious and he's week to week Mm -hmm. which is not really two concepts that go together too often. Like the idea is if it's not that serious you should be able to measure his return time in days. And the impression that I got was it was the combination of a nagging injury that the Leafs wanted to wait for Anderson to heal from And at the same time, it was a recognition that his play hadn't been adequate lately, and so there was no longer much use in him pushing through. If he had been playing well, and it were a playoff game that night, the impression I got was that Freddie Anderson still might have been starting. But now that they've kind of taken him off, Jack Campbell has uh, really stabilized the net for the most part, I think that they've decided that the best thing that they can do is give him time to fully recover, which is... Uh, I think the right thing to do. So yeah. Um it, one thing I want to know, yeah. um Species,
0: our Marty one of our Marty's correspondents, has mentioned a few times that like Keith is just not above straight up lying when it comes to injuries. <laughs> <laughs> like there are situations where I think Capitan uh got injured during a game or something and someone asked about it, and Keith said, Yeah, I don't know anything about that, and then like ten minutes later Kapanen walks through the locker room and crutches.
1: Mm. <laughs> Tactical dishonesty.
0: <laughs> yeah um so you know don't take anything at face value okay so all that stuff aside we should actually talk a little bit about riley nash the player and how he potentially fits into a least playoff roster so um yeah Fulman, do you have any i guess
1: initial thoughts on that so riley nash seems like the most columbus of depth forwards almost he's always had quite good defensive impacts Those have persisted through several different teams. Uh, Obviously, Columbus, we know painfully and intimately how much they can be a pain in the ass to play against. Uh, Riley Nash seems to suit that really well. He has played center in the past, and he is a competent, I'm going to say, face-off man. This is something that we talked about before with Pierre Engvall. We said, face-offs aren't that huge, but to be a fourth-line center, you do have to take them, and you can't get totally cleaned out the way that Engvall has been doing. Riley Nash isn't actually that great at face-offs, but he doesn't get cleaned out. He finishes between about 48 and 50% on his win percentage every year, which is enough that, well, it's not a knockout weakness or anything like that. Uh, He's probably lost whatever offense he once had. You know, he did have a 41-point season a couple of years back, and so it's not that there was never anything there production-wise, but I think at this point... The Leafs have to be counting on him to help be part of a null line. I made a joke online that was Engvall, Nash, Mikheyev would be the most nothing line that could ever exist. They would never score. They would very rarely get scored on. It wouldn't totally stun me if we even saw that line at some point. But that's where Nash is coming in. This isn't an acquisition to bump Alex Galchenyuk out of the top six. This is an acquisition to shore up the depth with a solid defensive player who slows the game down.
0: Yep, pretty much. Um, Nash is, you know, imagine if Freddie Gauthier had fully panned out, more <laughs> or less. That That's how I would describe Riley Nash as a player. Um, his on-ice impact stats by Hockey Viz and by Evolving Wild basically paint him as uh, the least fun average play driver you'll ever watch.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: nothing happens for either team when he's on the ice. One interesting thing about him is that historically he's a player whose uh, core C4 has lagged his expected goals. So that suggests to some extent he probably spends more time territorially in his own zone than he does in his opponent's zone, even though um, you know, these play driving results tell, him, tell us he's around an average play driver. Uh, but the lines when he's on the ice tend to do a better job of um, suppressing quality offense despite that, right? So he he's one of those players who genuinely does seem to keep it to the outside, and that kind of fits what we know of Columbus's M.O. and also of uh, Boston's M.O. when the top line isn't on the ice, yes. or at least when the bottom six is on the ice. The Krejci line in, in years past has been quite strong offensively
1: too. It's a kind of fascinating addition for the Leafs to make because they've obviously seen Riley Nash. They remember him from a couple of playoff series. And he brings a thing that the Leafs maybe conspicuously lacked in recent years in terms of having those depth players that do slow the game down to such a great extent. And so you wonder if the Leafs moving to a more top six, bottom six model as they've done this year. And with a perhaps evolving comfort level with who their top six is going to be. We'll see if there's another trade coming or not, but they look like they've decided, okay, we can trust those lines to hold up their end of the bargain productivity wise. And then we want a line that ideally can hang in against some kind of competition and have nothing happen. This is just uh, an aside, but we talk about this sometimes with fourth liners who play other fourth liners most of the time. And then they have kind of good defensive stats And Riley Nash has shown, at least in the past, that he's capable of playing against some actual competition and slowing the game down. If the Leafs could, again, assemble a third line, and we talked about this with Hyman Engvall-Mikheyev, if they can get a line with Riley Nash on it that can go against tough competition and make that nothing happen, that's a huge asset for the Leafs. I'm not expecting his impact to be anywhere near that large. I'm just
0: saying that's the dream scenario. It absolutely is. I mean, in, in this current season... Nash has faced slightly lower than league average competition, it seems, mm-hmm. right? But remember, he's more or less playing bottom six minutes, right? Like, and, and a lot of, you know, fourth line minutes. And he's, his line mates, more importantly, are almost always kind of the 11th and 12th most played players on the ice or the forwards on the ice. Mm-hmm. So he's, the competition he plays is above his, his station, so to speak so that that's worth um that's worth noting in terms of usage as you would expect he tends to be used more defensively than offensively uh that's been quite notable this year where he's been kind of buried in defensive zone shift starts that wasn't the case last year to the same extent um and in terms of leverage i mean you're never playing this guy when
1: you're when you're trailing mm-hmm.
0: right he's there, he's there to hold leads
1: exactly which with the Leafs' experience, you can certainly see why they might like to have someone who can do that. But there is a, an additional question, and you asked me this before we went on the air, which is, who does he replace? And that's difficult. And it's not difficult. a question, yeah,
0: it's not a question that has an ob- as obvious an answer as you would think, mm-hmm. right? Because, I mean, the when, when Galchenyuk started getting into the lineup, he was... The Leafs were injured for that sometimes too, but like in full, when fully healthy, the Leafs 13th forward right now seems to be Alex Barabanov,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who seems like a lovely guy, and I actually don't even dislike how he's played. I think he's played you know, absolutely fine, but no one is, is crying when Alex Barabanov is scratched.
1: He's the epitome of the guy who can come in and do a competent job, and the guy who can go out and not be noticed. Just he's right on that exact thirteenth forward, dividing line where he can slip in and out of the lineup. So, yeah. and with him out of the lineup now, mm-hmm.
0: well, who who's next on that list, right? And you 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 roll through the top two lines. we let's assume William Nylander is healthy. Obviously, there's the um he's still in COVID protocol right now. The word seems to be positive. He hasn't, and, and that he hasn't tested positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know we hope that he and his contact are also, you know, are, are both safe and are able to deal with the virus if they contract it. Um, well, well, I guess his contact must have contracted the virus, otherwise he wouldn't be in protocol, and hopefully Nylander continues to test negative. Um, but yeah, the top two lines, Hyman, Matthews, Marner, Gauchenyuk, Taveras, Nylander. Maybe Gauchenyuk and Hyman are, are swapped, uh, but they're, they're staying in some, in some fashion, Mongello, another trade, which we're going to assume is not happening.
1: That yeah, that's cool. the thing, is Riley Nash does not bump Alex Galteniak. He does not mm-hmm. have the skill set to do any of those things, even if you don't think Galteniak is that great at them. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes a question of, if the Leafs don't get anyone else, who in the bottom six goes out for Riley Nash? Right. Yeah, neither Nick nor Nash can do the other's job, basically. Exactly, yeah.
0: Um, and yeah, in the bottom six, okay, well, you're left with Alex Kerfoot, Joe Thornton, Kier Engvall, Ilya Mikheyev, Jason Spezza, Wayne Simmons.
1: And that's tricky. I know that there's been a groundswell of disappointment with Joe Thornton lately, because mm-hmm. people are, I think, that he's wearing out with the intensity of the season, and he is kind of up there. And, you know, I think at this point, what he brings is a kind of a mixed bag at times. You know, we've talked about how some of his skills seem to persist very strongly, and some of them have faded quite a lot. I I don't have a problem keeping him around. I think people are maybe a little bit hard on him at times because when he's not scoring, suddenly you're keen to how slow he can look sometimes. But I do think that there's an issue of who do you take out here. And you probably don't take out Thornton or Simmons because of age and veteran status. You don't take out Jason Spezza because he's been awesome. And then you're left with, uh, Pierre Engvall and Ilya Mikheyev, who do basically what Riley Nash does. They'd seem to be the most natural line mates for him. In, exactly. in some sense. Or Alex Kerfoot, who's probably, worse than all, still as good a player as there is in the bottom six. So Right.
0: And and maybe this is the idea behind getting Riley Nash. It's just to give Sheldon Keefe more options. Now he has that prototype defensive center who can play, you know, above his station on the fourth line and neutralize uh, other lines and, and take spot duty against a Connor McDavid. And you're not that terrified, right? Yeah. can take spot duty against Brendan Gallagher. Exactly.
1: And, you're like, oh,
0: and it's like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to survive this. This can free up a couple shifts of John Tavares against, I don't know, whoever is on Montreal's third or fourth line against Jake Evans.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, And that's a a matchup we can win.
1: The related point on that is that this is only a problem until someone gets injured and someone almost invariably does. Yes. At some point, you know, it's entirely possible. But by the time the playoffs work, sorry, the playoffs begin, uh, the Leafs are working with uh, fewer forwards than they have now. And as soon as you bump one of those guys, Riley Nash is the next guy in. No problem. So... It is possible the Leafs are just anticipating there are going to be bumps in the road and we would like to have some security. I don't think that this is like a game-changing acquisition, to be clear. It just is of a guy who can competently play in the bottom six and probably contribute and also provide a little bit of injury depth. Like, this is a a very minor move, but it's the kind of move that you make when you're a contender and you're trying to shore up your chances while also keeping an eye on bigger bigger prizes as mm-hmm. the Leafs have supposedly been doing yeah with with Nash in general
0: it, it it's interesting um his usage has changed a little bit it's gotten actually even more defensive this year in in prior years at least with Columbus he he was used more defensively than offensively but he wasn't given that you know okay you were never ever 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 uh, starting in, even in the neutral zone. You're always starting in the defensive zone. You're always playing, you know, with where we want to defend leads and all that sort of thing. Uh, this year, his, his usage has gone, you know, even further in that direction. And it, it's interesting. Um, John Tortorella takes a lot of crap for a lot of reasons. Many of them deserved. But when I was studying the Blue Jackets last year, the one thing that struck me is that his... Usage of players generally seem to be aligned with what, you know, their stats and their track records say are their skill sets. Mm-hmm. For all the talk about him trying to turn, for example, Patrick Laine into if, um, a power forward or whatever. Uh, I, I've generally found that, that Tortorella is reasonably good about... Playing players, quote unquote, where they should be played. Or uh, now that doesn't say anything about style, of course, right? And if 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 it's you know in the case of Line A there might be a style mismatch with with the team, but I, I do actually kind of trust uh, Tortorella's usage of of players generally, and I do see that as a template of how he could and probably would be used by Shelton Keith as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think with Tortorella, you have to give him a certain amount of respect based on he's had teams that did better than we thought they would be able to do on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. He, he does have a long track record, and there is a certain amount of credit that you have to give him for that. And I think with players like Riley Nash, who are pretty established at this point, who have shown some offensive flair in the past, There can be something, like, it's almost like a feedback loop where it's, okay, offense is fading a bit. Let's use him in a more defensive role. He does well at that, but he doesn't produce as much because, again, more defensive usage. And it sort of perpetuates and drives them into this bottom six role. Obviously, if they were really good at offense, they would still be able to overcome that and possibly regain their previous position. But it wouldn't surprise me to see this as kind of a recurring thing with players at Riley Nash's stage of their career, where they can still contribute. They're still effective and good players and they're liked by coaches, but they're no longer what they once were in terms of capacity to help on the other end. At any rate, I think that this is a good acquisition. I don't want to blow it out of proportion. I know that we've done 23 ish minutes on this now because it's, what the Leafs have done primarily in terms of trades at this point. And I do think that it helps, but it, it, you know, the fact that it's a conditional seventh that might promote to a six, that gives you an idea of the scale of this one. So.
0: Yeah. The, I think the big takeaway is that Nash is a depth player who can play with play against a harder quality of competition than his quality of teammates generally corresponds to. Yeah. And to on play. the Leafs that could make him really useful because even our depth forwards, like Mikheyev and Engwal, and for example, are useful bottom sixers. And he might be able to be part of a line that is able to um, yeah, play above their station and free up one or both of the top lines to go apeshit on some poor third or fourth liner. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, he can let you win those kind of power versus depth trades.
1: Exactly. And the Leafs. In the end, that's always the game with Toronto's line matching is that when you give Matthews and Tavares opportunities, they can make hay. Yeah, so. and that's a, that's
0: if everything works out, right? Of course, it's not a guarantee. Nash, you know, for example, this year is his underwater in, of course, the expected goals and actual goals, right? It's not, we're not saying, oh, he's going to saw off against McDavid and, you know, then Tavares is going to beat up on Hmm.
1: right?
0: But that that's the theory of how it could
1: work. I mean, as we found out to our great discomfort against Columbus, it is also just possible that your top players don't score very much five on five, and mm-hmm. so obviously, if that happens, the leaves are in trouble no matter who they're playing against. but i do I like this ad. I certainly like it at the price that it was, and I think that it has the potential to maybe turn out to have been a little bit meaningful down the line. So we'll see. yeah i, I can
0: I definitely can see the logic. In this deal, um, I think it, it's it's smart in, in in a couple ways. That doesn't mean, you know, it's not it's not changing the entire trajectory of the team. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a it's a smart ad that can help the Leaf situationally. Um, and the cost of a of doing this, both in terms of assets given up and flexibility uh, that we have forfeit,
1: is pretty minimal. Right. So we were going to do another segment today, Mm -hmm. which was bad takes. We do these occasionally, and people seem to like it when we're mean-spirited. And there's been a, a whirl of features at The Athletic about who says no. You've probably seen these online and in other trade fora, where who says no is you propose a trade, and you say either... This team rejects the trade, that team rejects the trade, or both teams are okay with it, and then the trade happens. And this is obviously kind of a fun game for trade speculation, and so the Athletic got a bunch of these fan proposals, and then ran them past NHL executives, who were not identified by name, but were identified by title NHL executive, to evaluate the trade. This
0: is a great idea on the part of the Athletic.
1: I want to be clear, this is very fun, and... Any criticisms that we make are not of the concept itself. It's actually Mm -hmm. quite interesting. I feel this way about like Craig Houston's when he surveys the whole league's executives about goalies and stuff. I'm like, well, it's very interesting to know what they think about goalies and stuff like that. Even if some of the things that are printed are kind of dumb. Mm. And so we looked at a few of these. And I want to be clear, if you ever write or say anything online for any sustained stretch of time, you will have bad takes. We have tons. We have tons. I can think of several. In the interest of disclosure, for example, I thought Alex Ovechkin was in decline after that 32-goal season. And I was like, okay, he'll still be good, but now it's going to go downwards into a, a slow sunset. And that looks exceptionally dumb right now. So... I'm not coming at this from a place of arrogance and contempt. It's just some of these ideas made us upset Mm. in our souls. And so we thought, let's just look at why we object to these things.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things I think we say a lot on this pod is that it's not as easy as hockey Twitter likes to say about being an NHL, uh, to be an NHL decision maker,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right? I, I don't think I would be a good NHL GM right now.
1: It'd be really challenging. And, like, there should be a baseline level of respect for the people who are doing the job, up to a point. Mm -hmm. But you should give credit to the people who are already there, who are doing it, who probably have a grasp on elements of it that aren't obvious to you from the outside. Exactly. Now, these articles and these takes make me question that thought. (laughs) Some of them you're like, really? That's baffling. Anyway... Yeah, so uh, we will try to approach this with an even-handed mix of understanding and also making fun of them. Yes.
0: Understanding and derision, the two <laughs> ingredients to any successful, uh, I guess, uh, media critique. Mm. So the first, these are all di- different trade propo- proposals, basically. So I'll read out the trade proposal and then I'll tell you what the executive thought. Uh, some of these are, are least related some of them are not. So this first one... Um, someone proposed Anaheim Ducks send Ricard Raquel to the Maple Leafs for a first round pick, Timothy Loegren and Alex Kerfoot. Anaheim retains 300,000 of Raquel's salary. Now this might actually not be um, doable now, but I'm, we're, we'll assume that it was actually doable at the time that it was sent in. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm, we're not, I'm not going to say, Oh, this is a dumb trade thing. You should have mentioned the LTIR ramifications. Like that's not, yeah. that's not you know, really relevant or very fun. Um, so exec number one says that's a good one. I think Toronto says yes. I think it's a no for Anaheim because you have the wrong prospect in there. People talk a lot about Liljegren, Sandine, and Nick Robertson. I think if you have Sandin or Robertson, you have a deal. Liljegren is the third of three. People have concerns on Liljegren. So I'll say a couple things for the exec here. I think they're accurate in how they talk about the prospects. Mm-hmm. Liljegren is the third of three. People do have concerns about Liljegren. If you have Sandin or Robertson there, you do have a deal. But that's because it, the deal would be fucking stupid for Toronto. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're giving away the store based on, okay, so I did want to try and observe a couple of through lines here. When ticks get this bad or like this, one of the things you wonder is, I wonder how this analysis came to be. Why are people valuing Ricard Raquel that much? And my theory is one, he had two plus goal seasons and people remember that. And two, you can kind of get away for a couple of seasons in Anaheim of not being that very, that good, and people just don't notice. Because it's the Anaheim Ducks. And I really believe that people maybe haven't been paying attention to what Ricard Raquel has done in the last three seasons. And that might help go to some length to explain why the price is still so high. Like, the Leafs are paying a first... And Tim, and Timothy Liljegren for the difference between Ricard Raquel and Alex Kerfoot, which is not that large anymore. Yeah,
0: it's, um, I, I yeah. think that sums it up uh, very, very, very well. Ricard Raquel was someone who I coveted a lot in his earlier years. Mm-hmm. But he has declined a bit since then. right? And in recent seasons, the difference between Kerfoot and Raquel has been really minimal. Right. In fact, in 1920, Kerfoot had greater uh, goals above replacement. The same was true, actually, in 1819. Mm. Right? And, you know, it's not as if Raquel is on some incredible sweetheart deal anymore. Right? He's, he's getting paid, I think, slightly more than Kerfoot for this year and next.
1: Yeah, with so the it's 300000 retention that was posited in the deal, they wind up making almost exactly the same cap hit. And uh, Kerfoot is assigned a slightly longer. So you have two
0: players who appear to be almost equal by our our, our current best all-in-one metrics. Now, I'll I'll spot that um, these are not perfect. Raquel is descending from a higher height. There might be greater um, potential for a rebound there when you put him in a good situation. A lot of Raquel's decline has been shooting-related. And maybe you think, okay, that's not real. Like, that's just, he's gotten kind of spectacularly unlucky for a little bit. And if I play him with strong line mates, he's going to do a lot better. Those are all reasonable things. But you can't escape the fact that over the past, you know, two to three years, these guys have not been that different. Raquel has had a couple years of insanely great shooting, where he looked like a true plus shooter, and a few years of really terrible shooting. You can't throw away one without throwing away the other. You take it in aggregate, his entire career, he looks like an average shooter, and if he's an average shooter, he is not that much better than Alex Garfoot. Certainly not enough better to warrant giving up one more year of team control, a first, and a prospect who looks like he can be an NHL player at some point. Maybe not a great one, but an NHL player, and those still have value.
1: It's sort of like you look at all of this, and there's a genuine question as to how much better the Leafs are if they flip Kerfoot for Raquel, I'm going to acknowledge, I think Raquel is probably still a better player. Right. And again, if he has that shooting talent, if, he, if he's still, you know, a 30 plus goal guy in some sort of, you know, potential sense, then yeah, great stuff. But this is something that you've talked about before, where it's, we can't give him credit for being a good shooter. And then when he has bad shooting you're years, say, oh, it's bad luck. And this is... The problem with trying to analyze who's actually good at at this and who just got kind of lucky and was fine at it. And when it's been three years now since he was a really good goal scorer, you start to think, what am I paying for here? And I really do believe that this, this kind of idea is just that it's out of date. You know, and I think it's based on who Raquel used to be, and I do not have a lot of confidence that's who he still is. If it is, this trade could turn out pretty well for Toronto, notwithstanding what we expect of it, but I do not see why we think that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's something that happens. And to be clear, it's not like I watch the Anaheim Ducks more than I have to, which is when the Leafs play them. So this year I have watched zero Anaheim Ducks games. And... If you're actually scouting the Anaheim Ducks on a regular basis, maybe you look at Richard Rickard, sorry, Ricard, Raquel, and see things that ordinary people are missing or looking at the stat line. But part of the use of stats is that they give us some sort of baseline for looking around the league and seeing whether the things are, uh, you know, comparable or smart trades. And so I do think that it's still worth being kind of skeptical about this one. For that reason,
0: yeah, the the value is so off with respect to what the stats say that even with fairly wide confidence intervals on it, which is I think we both have
1: mm-hmm.
0: Liljegren and Sandin being added to this deal make it very very difficult to see how it's a positive one for the Leafs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, um, the next one, the next one, we're not going to have to do this level of couching. <laughs> Yeah. Because you know what, yeah, maybe if you maybe I can see a world where, where you know that previous Raquel Kerfoot deal is somewhat justifiable, or I can see kind of a frame of mind that would lead to that, and it's coherent. And I don't agree with it, but I also recognize you know we haven't watched all that much um, Raquel. I think I've watched two Ducks games this year, both when when Trevor Z Grass came up because I was interested in him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, Rakow didn't really uh, do anything for me in those games, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, there, there's some uncertainty there. There is not as much uncertainty with the next one, because the next take is, um, the next trade proposal, is the Wild send Kirill Kaprizov, wonder rookie, and first-round pick to the Sabres for one Jack Eichel. Uh,
1: Fulman, would you like to read what the executive said? Minnesota says no, hard no, never even consider it, absolutely not. You wait this long for Kaprizov, don't you have to see what you have a little bit? I mean, <laughs> wow, well, he goes on for a while. Uh, but yeah, he basically says, Look, he's a, f-, this is Reikel, look, he's a first line talent. There have been nights where he hasn't been very good. You can tell he's frustrated. What is it, the chicken or the egg? Is it the culture and the place that has led to the frustration or the other way around? He's a legit first line talent. There aren't too many of those guys, but. It- I'm Minnesota, Kaprizov doesn't go anywhere. And two more execs said, no, keep Kaprizov. And yeah, there have been questions about his Jack Eichel's character since he was 16, and he hasn't done anything to trade that perception. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) they just turn it down again and again. And I'm like, are you insane? This is fucking... (laughs)
0: Bonkers. Okay, so here's the thing. Kaprizov, Kaprizov. is a rookie, right? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, he's an older rookie, but he is a rookie. Yes, but that—that's that, what I'm getting to. He is 23 right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Do
0: you know who else is 23?
1: <laughs> I mean, Jack Eichel is 24. But
0: yeah. oh, sorry, that changes my entire analysis. Okay, yeah, this is a good. Trade. It's a good
1: trade. Now, like the difference between them in age is like six months. They were in the same draft. Hmm. So. And
0: <laughs> it's gone under under the radar this year. Um, you know, because Eichel has been hurt and Buffalo has of course just been an absolute, you know, disaster of epic proportions. Um But Eichel is in the same tier as players like Austin Matthews and Nathan McKinnon. In the just under Connor McDavid bracket. Yeah. Like based on this year, maybe you put McKinnon and Matthews above him. Right. Well, not maybe. You, they, they probably should be above him. But Eichel is, you know, if Eichel comes back and puts up seasons comparable to them going forward, no one's shocked. Eichel is an amazing
1: player. He is so good. Mm-hmm. He, like, he would be probably the best player in the history of the Wild franchise, I'm guessing. Certainly the best forward. Um, yeah, without a doubt. Like, who else is it? Marion Gabaruk, I guess? And then Kaprizov himself is already like in the rarefied air that is Minnesota forwards. And so I get, I think cap concerns certainly play a big role at this point in time. And Jack Eichel makes $10 million, uh, against the salary cap. Now, Kirill Kaprizov is going to need a new contract in the summer. It's not going to be $10 million, I don't think. But it, I could see it being pretty expensive, especially if they want to try and buy a lot of term.
0: Yeah, he's, he's an RFA. Um, and what, he'll have maybe three more years of RFA status?
1: Yeah, so he'll be uh, 27. Yeah, he's about to turn 24 himself in a couple yeah. weeks. Uh, so he'll be 27 when he, uh, he gets loose. But it's just a matter of as cool as Kirill Kaprizov is, and as dazzling... And And as much as there is a cloud of uh, disgusting, stinky failure over anything to do with the Buffalo Sabres at this point. Blaming Jack Eichel for that is kind of nuts. And people don't quite seem to realize what he's dealing with there. Now, the character issues, I never know what someone is trying to refer to here. Because character issues can be like he likes to go to museums. Or he reads too many books or one time he didn't give a good media quote or sometimes they're alluding to some other thing that I have no comprehension of. Yeah. That are like actual serious issues. Yeah. But based on what we're seeing here, they're saying character issues since he was 16 and he's certainly an emotional and uh, sometimes expressive of his frustration kind of player. He's played in hell for his whole career. He's been the best player on a team that played in hell for years and years. And he's worked his ass off, sometimes doing quite well, regularly doing really well, in minutes for a team that otherwise got destroyed when he wasn't on the ice. I kind of don't know what else to say at this point other than Jack Eichel is a top 10 center in the world, and you can't expect him to save the worst run franchise in recent hockey memory by himself. He's not God. And this whole... This, like, confident rejection of the trade idea is basically because Jack Eichel is not God. Like, he was not able to save the worst-run franchise in hockey over the last 10 years. Um, I don't know. Like, I, this came up with Montreal, too, where some have fans were like, okay, these players are off-limit in a trade for Jack Eichel. And I'm saying... You can name any two Montreal Canadiens and a first, and if they trade them for Jack Eichel, Montreal wins the trade. Any two players. And, it's, yeah. it's just nuts. I mean,
0: look, it, it gives me no joy to say that Jack Eichel is a good player. <laughs> but yeah. he is. Yeah. Right? That's, mean... that's the reality. And... I, I I really, I just don't understand how these execs are so positive, so confident that they should tra- take Kaprizov instead, right? I mean, I guess it depends a lot on what you think Kaprizov's next deal is. It's not going to be $3 million.
1: No, I wouldn't think, even though he doesn't have offer sheet rights because of that weird that he's under for this time, but offer barely happen anyway. And Minnesota's going to want to lock him up for term, so we'll see about that. It's just... It really does feel like once you get associated with loser teams, it's so hard to shake that label in hockey. And we've seen it time and again with Taylor Hall, where I see even... even kind of progressive-minded stats-minded fans say that Taylor Hall lacks the will to win or they think that there's just something wrong with him. And I don't really get that. Like, you look where he's played. And again, he's just been so up against it in terms of luck and everything else. And so, again, Jack Eichel is the kind of guy who can be the basis of a franchise. He can't be the basis of a franchise when you watch every other single move around him again and again and again. But he's a fantastic player, and if Minnesota turned this down, I genuinely think that it would be the worst mistake in the history of the Minnesota Wild. It would be insane.
0: It's almost hard to find things to say about that, because it's just so on-its-face dumb.
1: Yeah, like, Uh. it's just almost upsetting how stupid it is. I don't know. It is. I worry we're being too harsh, but at the same time, it's like, come on, man. And... The other thing is with Jack Eichel is it's not like we're, it's not like we're out of step with how talented he's known to be. Like, this isn't like, you know, we've picked some guy who has great defensive metrics for a year and we've decided that he's actually a Selkie candidate. Everyone knows Jack Eichel is great. He went second overall behind McDavid for a reason one of the deepest drafts in modern history. Like, it's established that he really is as good as we seem to think he is. He's just being blamed because he can't save uh, a franchise that at this point looks like it's been cursed.
0: And while we're at it, why don't we wait for Kaprizov to have more than, you know, 40 games of a 15% shooting percentage and a 12% on-eye shooting percentage?
1: Yeah, like maybe he's one of those guys who's just a premier sniper. He's obviously extremely talented, but at the same time, that's pretty hot.
0: <laughs> no one sustains twelve percent on ice shooting percentage. I, I remember looking this up when um, uh, after Marner got his, his deal because I wrote an article saying mm-hmm. you know look Marner probably hit his career high in, in points and that actually looks incredibly dumb. Speaking of bad takes, because um, he, his point rate I think each of the last two years has actually been higher th- than that. He's been unreal, yeah. Right, but the logic was so few people, basically no one is able to reliably sustain a 12% on-eye shooting percentage at 5-on-5. It's just absurd, right? And, I mean, that part of it is actually uh, still somewhat sound because Marner's on-eye shooting percentage in the year after that was 11. This year it's 14%. But that's also, you know, an insane uh, figure and possibly unsustainable one in of itself. And also he plays with Austin Matthews in one of the weaker defensive divisions. I'm not expecting 14% on a shooting percentage from Marner going forward, and you'd be a fool to expect even 12% from Kaprizov going forward, because that is just very, very hard for anyone to do that.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Kiril Kaprizov is the new hotness. He's had all this build up for a player that might have been coming over again and again, and has now come over, and has been genuinely great. And Jack Eichel is suffering from being yesterday's news, who came in, was very touted, and was unable to save a franchise that, again, is a complete disaster. You do wonder, if Jack Eichel is breaking into the league this year and Kirill Kaprizov has been playing in the NHL since their draft year, I wonder how the perceptions of these are different. Obviously, the mechanics of it don't work because Kaprizov was um, a 5th round pick and Eichel was second overall, but I really do think that they are uh, victims of narrative in different ways, so...
0: I would agree with that. Um, Just on one more point on the online shooting percentage thing, Mm -hmm. Connor McDavid has an online shooting percentage of twelve percent once in his career. Yeah, right. That's that's how hard it it is. Probably no. Yeah, that's how hard it is to do it consistently. McDavid's usually in the ten to eleven percent, and that's Connor McDavid.
1: Yeah, who's really, 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 really good. So, yeah, uh, don't fall for the new hotness. Save Jack Uggle from Buffalo. He's suffered enough. Mm -hmm. Um.
0: The next one, we can actually probably skip the next one. It was just, a, it was a joke about, um, <laughs> it, it was, uh, just for l- l- the sake of the listeners, it was Elliott Freeman saying, oh, I think D- uh, Dallas's Jamie Alexiak might be a decent option if, or, or might be someone that Toronto is considering if they decide to go for a depth defender. I just think it would be kind of unnecessary. Um, it's yeah. not actually a bad take at all.
1: Yeah, it's just there's no point. Yeah. But, yeah. This next I, one, I think, was made in a lab to upset you, though. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was. I-, I couldn't see straight for like an hour after I saw this.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So yeah, it's um uh, Essa Lindell and Joel Lesperance for Toronto's William Neilan. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Uh, no. Oh my god. So um
0: <laughs> I will take this opportunity as I do for every at, at every as I do, you know, whenever the opportunity arises to tell the listeners of Essa Lindell theory. <laughs> Esa Lindell theory states that the third defenseman on any um, playoff team that goes far ends up being overvalued. And it's entirely because people want to praise the team, but they want to sound smart when doing so. And you don't sound smart by praising the guys who everyone praises. So you find the next guy. So, you know, the Stars make the cup final. They're a defensive team. You look at their defenders, you know, why? that's why they're doing well. Their defenders and their goalie. But everyone knows Miro Heiskinen's good. Everyone knows John Klingberg's good, but Essa Lindell. People don't know about Essa Lindell. So you say Essa Lindell's really good. He's actually a really undervalued player for the Stars and maybe one of their most important defensemen. And now you are, seem learned and wise. Wow, the, the rubes are saying, wow, Miro Heiskinen's real good, eh?
1: Yes, and I'd like to note that Arvind actually put this thesis forward and now he's a doctor, so. I'm not saying that it was. The thesis, but you, I'm not saying it isn't either. So, so the thing is,
0: there's another, there's actually another example of Esselink theory, and it's on the our Toronto Maple Leafs, oh. Justin Hall. So he's not the third defenseman, but he, you, you go down until you get like the the least unheralded guy playing a somewhat major role, right? And in this case, it's in Hall's case, it's magnified by the fact that everyone loves to dunk on all the bad decisions Mike Babcock's made. Mm-hmm. Right? And Justin Hall is one of those. But then like, you get tweets saying, you know, Justin Hall has been the best shutdown defender in Canada uh, during uh, this season. It's like, well, have you looked at his linemate
1: or his yeah. pairing? It's like he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles, man. Jake Melson is <laughs> the better guy <laughs> on the pairing. Yeah, he's right there. Yeah. You know, right?
0: <laughs> so Justin Hall is a perfect example of Lindell theory. So the thing with Essa Lindell, um, he plays relatively big minutes on the stars he plays important minutes on the stars but he does not appear to do them incredibly successfully he plays a lot with uh John Klingberg and I can buy that I can buy that Lindau is better than his stats say his stats are not at all positive Mm -hmm. right but you know you he plays a lot with John Klingberg maybe in the minutes that Klingberg doesn't play with him Klingberg is playing in a super offensive role so you know When you watch Lindell, you can see why people like him more than his stats say. That being said, that being said, if I am trading William Nylander for someone, I want a hell of a lot more than, yeah, I mean, his stats aren't good, but you can see why they might underrate him a bit. Because there is a big, big difference between Lindell's stats underrating him a bit and him being worth a first liner in the NHL.
1: I'd like to just throw in there before we discard this element of the trade completely. Joel Esperance is a 25-year-old AHL-NHL tweener center. And I cannot imagine him being of the least interest beyond as like a throw-in. He adds no value to the trade. So, we're basically left with Lindell for Nylander. And again, this would be disastrous I really do believe that if you're going to get one of these defensive players, you've got to have some sort of confidence that they are the one driving the bus. That they are responsible for some sort of notable defensive impact. And that impact isn't just the Stars had a really hot goalie run and made the finals when maybe they were a bit fortunate to do so. There has to be some sort of basis for saying, no, Essa Lindell is this guy who's making this happen. And yeah, like what we're left with, with with SL Lindell is the idea of a good player with a lot of reason to be skeptical that he's actually moving the needle to the extent that we hope William Nylander is just a fantastically good first line caliber winger that everyone has underrated in the city for too long for the most part. And I don't think it's coincidental that other fans are kind of circling Wondering if they could get him for cheap, right? So this is really this is less about
0: a high degree of confidence with Lindell being bad, right? Mm-hmm. I don't watch the Stars that much. When I've watched him, I thought he was okay, but like he's not. The the, the guys on the Stars blue line who I'm interested in, who are, who I look at, I'm like, oh wow, they're really good. Or mm-hmm. Heiskanen and Klingberg, the guys everyone thinks are really good. Right. Yeah. But the the real reason I think this is a terrible take is because. Lindell would have to be so much better than his stats, say. Like, the stats would have to be so wrong about him for him to approximate Nylander's value. It's, it's not saying that, oh, I'm 100% sure Lindell is bad. It's that I have to be really, really, really convinced that Lindell is as good as William Nylander.
1: Yeah, and by the way, this was the exact quote, which I didn't elaborate in full, but Della says no. If they did that, I think they'd score more, but they'd also get much worse defensively. And I think we saw what happened to Dallas a couple of years ago when they struggled defensively and how poorly that can go. Okay. First of all, much worse defensively. Well, whatever. But. They would
0: need a guy to take Lindell's minutes and I'll I'll, I'll defer to them and say, okay, yeah, that doesn't seem... Lindell plays big minutes for them. Yeah. And, but like, just because he plays big minutes doesn't mean he's necessarily doing as well as anyone can do there. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's... That's what it was down to. Also, Lindell... Sorry, I'm I'm cutting off your point here. But Lindell is, I believe, 26 already. um, And he has a deal for... How many more years? Four more years after this one at 5.8 mil.
1: Yeah, he's not a a spring chicken. Mm -hmm. And and so with a lot of these players, I also think... This is another thing. We talked about the bias of player who was good a few years ago and you haven't maybe checked in on them as much since then, with Raquel. I think Essel Lindell really broke through into the broader consciousness with the Dallas Stars run. And as a result, he might be presumed to have more ahead of him than some players of his age. Like, he again, he's 26. He's about to be 27 in May. Uh, and he signed for a term. So however good he is now, he's probably not getting any better than that. And so there's a... A lot going on here, I think, in terms of, okay, however critical Lindell is. And then I just do not think that people get how good William Meelander is. And this sort of echoes with the next one, which is, I guess Essel Lindell is just trade candidate of the year now at this point. But Essel Lindell and a pick for Winnipeg's Nikolai Ehlers was another one. And again... The executives were saying Dallas says no. Right,
0: and you can kind of copy and paste the exact same things here because I I think Nylander and Ehlers are are fairly similar players Yeah. uh, in terms of overall value.
1: I'd have Ehlers a little bit ahead at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think think that's fair. you can argue it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's the the same idea. It's not that I'm 100% sure Lindell is bad. Like, Lindell doesn't see... I, I buy that Lindell is better than his stats. Is that the difference between his stats and, say, Nylander's or Eiler stats is so vast that you have to buy that he is way, 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 way,
1: way better than his stats. Exactly. Like, you can say, hey, I think Essel Lindell might actually be a pretty decent third defenseman. But that's not the same as a winger who is, like, a top-of-a-team winger. In, in Winnipeg, uh, Nikolai Ehlers has an argument that right now he's the best forward on the team. Um, And even if I tend to have him behind Shively and maybe behind Dubois, that level of impact for a guy who might be a little better than his stats look seems really dubious to me. So, yeah, it just... It does really feel like there is this idea of players like Esselindel as being so critical, and yet we see players like him who play a lot of minutes and who don't really do as well on them as we expect. And I don't see how you get around that. Pretty much. Yeah. It's
0: I, I, so Lindell theory is kind of, it's very tongue in cheek as you can probably guess, but I do think there's an element of truth to it where there, it's like the hipsterdom of hockey analysis, Mm -hmm. right? People want to find under the radar guys, It's why every three weeks on hockey Twitter, someone will say, oh, who's the most underrated player in the world? And 4,000 people will say it's Alex Barkov." Right? So uh, in this case, I just think the reality doesn't match up with what people are are saying. It's not that I think Lindau is a quote, is a straight up bad player. He's not. Or at least I don't think he, he, I don't think I'm not confident he is. It's that he isn't remotely worth a first-line winger. Like even putting it charitably, um, Lindell is the second guy on a top pairing. Right? Like at, at, at absolute best, he's a solid number two player, number two defenseman.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that worth a upper half of the league top-line winger, which is what Nylander and Eilers are? Yeah, in my I don't opinion, think so. no.
1: Yeah. The other thing that I can't help but wonder is, say that uh, Colorado's goalies are healthy last year. They lost to Dallas in a Game 7, the second round, uh, because they were playing Michael Hutchinson, who was their third-string goalie. And as we know from experience, that's not something that you want to do more than you have to. I'm not saying that that delegitimizes Dallas's win. Injuries happen. But I am saying... I wonder how much of the magic of Essa Lindell maybe would not have swelled to a chorus uh, to the extent that it has if the stars had gone out in round two instead of round four. It's one of those things where I really do believe playoff runs have this way of impressing themselves on popular consciousness, and I think that that applies to executives. And it turned into almost a parlor game every year where somebody would pay for whoever had a really good playoff run, like Matt Bileski for example, and the deal would turn into an albatross. Esselindel won't be like that, but I do think that part of the reason that he's valued so highly is because the main memory that people have of him is that playoff run. So. Absolutely. Okay, so I think those
0: are all the bad takes we had. That was cathartic, I think
1: yeah well you know we should just be angry more often let's do that too nice
0: yeah that's, i think that's very true um <laughs> actually no i think that's a fucking terrible idea you're an idiot for <laughs> Why you, think that? <laughs> you, you motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times was there anything else that we wanted to discuss
1: nope i'm good hopefully kyle dubas makes a fascinating and dazzling trade that gives us something to analyze if not we've given you all of our riley nash material so at least we've covered it
0: yeah all right well thank you everyone for listening you can catch all of mine and foodman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rv and at thank you again for listening and we will catch you next week